0: So far in the retreat, we've talked about uh, quite a bit about the emptiness of self, the absence of uh, an enduring or fixed entity within mind and body. Talked about the aspect of not-self, how self uh, gets formed, the sense of self comes into being. Tonight I want to talk about uh, the emptiness of phenomena. This is sort of the other side of the emptiness of all appearances. This is a topic that the uh, Mahayanas have sort of claimed as their own for the last two millennia. And over that time, they've been beating up us poor Theravadins, claiming that we don't have this. Uh, they say, you see, we Mahayanas, we have both emptiness of self and emptiness of phenomena. But you poor benighted Theravadins, all you have is emptiness of self. So you're only halfway there. So, what I want to do tonight is take a uh, key text from the Buddha's discourses that is all about the emptiness of phenomena and refute 2,000 years of mistreatment. <laughs> So we've been through this week investigating our experiences as as human beings. And normally, I don't know about you, but when I look at a human being, I tend to see a person. When I see you all walking, doing your meditation, when I see you come into the hall, I think, oh, there's a person. In the Vasudhi Maga, it says that um, this is not very wise or very educated seeing. They said that this would be like a butcher, skilled butcher, carving up a cow. And as he carves the different pieces of meat, saying cow, cow, cow. But a skilled butcher who knows the carcass very well would instead be saying sirloin, tenderloin, rump, ribs. So someone who is skilled in investigating the mind-body process would not just say person, according to the Vasudhi They would see it in more detail. They would see the components that they've become very familiar with. This is part of what we've been talking about over these days. So I suspect that when the Buddha looked at a person, he saw in one of two ways. The first way is, as we read in the Sutta on Totality, do you remember that one? Bhikkhus attend, I will tell you the totality of life. I think this is quote 13. It is just the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and taste, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. That's all there is. These are the six senses. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, this is very interesting. It outlines human experience. But I sort of wondered... When I sit down and practice and become aware, I'm aware of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, sensation, and mind objects, but I don't usually notice eye, ear, nose, tongue, body as an organ, and mind as an organ. Why do you think the Buddha put those in? Why didn't he just say the totality is sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, sensation, and mind objects? Did he kind of miss the point? Was he hallucinating? Is there some importance to these other six things? I'd suggest the reason he put them in is to show that sight, sound, etc. is dependently arisen. They don't exist on their own only because we have the sense bases as a body, a human being in a body, to allow that contact and those experiences of the senses to arise. If he had just said there's only sight, sound, etc., it would have seemed like those existed independently. And this shows the dependent nature of their arising. So I think it's an important piece. So that's one way that we, we train ourselves to look through the six sense bases, both internal, that means the organs, and external, the phenomena that arise in them. The other key framework the Buddha used is the one we've been exploring today as Sally has presented it, which is the five aggregates. Form, feeling, perception, formations and consciousness. Are these describing two different totalities? Is there one totality that's described by the six sense bases, another that's described by the five aggregates? No. It's describing the same totality of experience, but just kind of slicing it up differently. So if you'd like to go through and make the association of how the six sense bases map onto the five aggregates, extra credit. get a lot of merit for that. So it's actually a fun thing to play with to see how they line up. I think it was Bhikkhu Bodhi who said that the Buddha tended to use the six sense bases to show how to cut through craving. That our our desire and aversion tends to form around sense bases. But he used the five aggregates to cut through wrong view, to establish right view. And that's what we've been reading all along. One one sees with proper wisdom thus, material form is not myself, feeling is not myself, etc., So, the aggregates tend to be used when the Buddha is teaching us the right way to understand the world in order to free the mind and heart. So, Sally talked a lot about these five aggregates. You all talked about them in your exercise this afternoon. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But I did want to point out uh, just one uh, more thing about this factor of perception. Perception may be the most underrated faculty uh, that we possess and not often talked about uh, in our teachings. And just notice that the very start of the chant that we've been doing in the evening, the Heart Sutra, says that Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, perceived that all five aggregates are empty and was released from all suffering. So this quality of perception is associated with insight. When we have an insight it usually comes because we perceived something new about our situation, about our experience, about the world, and so on. Here's just another example where the Buddha uses uh, the word in, in a powerful way. When the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust. It eliminates all lust for existence. It eliminates all ignorance. It eliminates all conceit. I am. This is powerful. Just the perception of impermanence, developed and cultivated, again and again and again, leads to uh, full awakening. So this perception is a a powerful quality in us. The other one I just wanted to touch on briefly, because it uh, will bear on our uh, discussion tonight, is the factor of consciousness or... Vijnana, as Sally explained really clearly it's consciousness that knows all the arisings of our experience and the way that I understand it happening is that when we have an experience like a sound the sound is material form the first aggregate the knowing of it is the fifth aggregate consciousness which is mental and these two rise up together in a a unified whole so that a human experience of hearing a sound has both these components. It has a physical component which is from the material world, the sound, and it has a mental component which is the knowing of that sound. They come up at the same time. They're joined together. I, I would say that as a human, it's a unitary experience for us. Hearing is not two separate things hearing just one moment of experience but we can look at it as having both these aspects there's a sound which is physical and there's the knowing of that sound which is mental and that's the activity of consciousness or vijnana. so just as an example of how these two things can be together in holding up this little bell is it round Or is it gold? It's both at the same time, isn't it? And you can't really separate. You can see the two aspects depending on where you focus. But it's both at the same time. It's both round and gold. Similarly, with an experience like hearing a sound, it's both things together. And you can focus on seeing one or the other. You can focus on the sound or you can focus on the knowing of it but they're kind of uh, inextricably together, arising together. And it's also said that in every moment of experience, all five aggregates are present for us. So, simple example, when you hear the bell at the end of a sitting, there's the sound, which is of the form aggregate. There's the feeling tone, and that sound at the end of a sitting is usually very pleasant. <laughs> it's like one of the most pleasant sounds of the day, the most. There is the um, perception. You recognize that that's the bell that ends the sitting, the clear recognition and understanding. Then there's usually a mental formation that accompanies. There's a thought. The sitting is over. And I don't know about you, but so many times I hear that bell and I, my, the thought is, oh, now I could sit forever. And then there's a sense of great ease, because the sitting's ended. So those formations, the thought and the ease, it's the mental formation, the fourth aggregate. And the knowing of all of those is the activity of consciousness. The sound, the feeling tone of being pleasant, the perception of bell, the thought and the emotion. Consciousness knows each of those as they unfold. So why is it liberating to understand our experience in terms of the five aggregates? Basically because we start to see as we investigate, that's all there is. There is only form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness. Examine as we might, there's nothing else there. And so what's missing, the I, that we normally think is at the center of all this, that experiences each of the aggregates, that owns them, that uh, sees them, or whatever. But as we examine our experience closely, there's nothing else in the mix. And the sense of I kind of arises from a, a certain stickiness among all the aggregates coming along together so rapidly. You know, we don't see them apart, and they happen so quick, and it feels like an I is kind of created by all that coming together. But when we look closely with the refined mindfulness supported by concentration, there's nothing else there. There's only the aggregates. So I'd like to turn to the um, quotation on page 11. It's number 35 under the heading Emptiness of Phenomena. This is from a sutta in the Connected Discourses called A Lump of Foam. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Ayodhya on the bank of the river Ganges. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of form there is, past, future, present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? Now, given that one of the key uses of the word form is this body. Basically, the Buddha is saying here that our body is void, hollow, and insubstantial, like a lump of foam. And similarly for the external world. This is not our normal understanding of these things. So in what way could we say that a body is like a lump of foam, Few years ago, I was teaching a retreat here. I think it was a February retreat, and giving a Dharma talk at this same time of day. And from outside, there came this kind of wrenching sound. It was a plaintive, uh, tearing, kind of heart heart-wrenching sound. It happened in the middle of the Dharma talk. M- mentioned it, but kept going and completed the talk. And afterwards, went out of the hall toward the source where we'd heard the sound, and there was a a young deer dead uh, over not far from the council house. And a couple of staff people had also come out to check it out and said that they'd seen a couple of large dogs running away around the time that that the deer was killed. And it looked like the dogs had attacked the deer and broken its neck because its neck was bent back at a very unnatural angle so you know a bunch of us all gathered around the deer and did loving kindness for it and wished its spirit well on the journey and held it as best we could and then the caretakers uh, who live on the land said they would arrange for the SPCA to come take it away so the next morning uh, the body of the deer was taken down near the front of the property, near the parking lot where you all left your cars, and was left by the side of the road, hoping that the SPCA would come and pick it up. But they never did. So over the next few days, we just got to watch what happened to the body of that young deer. And every day, a little more of the body just disappeared. So some of it was just decay. But for the most part, it was just being eaten by other animals that were around and coming by and finding it. After a few days, all that was left of that deer was pretty much the hide, the hoofs, the skull. All the, the bones had been picked clean. Some of them had been carried away. There was very little left. And we'd been able to observe that process kind of day by day. And that brought home to me that this body, too, is like a mass of foam. It can be here very substantially today in a very short period of time just gone, just disappeared, decomposed, turned into other elements, turned into nutrients, gone into the earth, gone into other beings, can vanish like that. So the word that's used in the sutta Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated void and hollow and insubstantial. The word sunya or empty doesn't appear in this sutta, which is kind of interesting. But I asked Bhikkhu Bodhi about these words. The word that's being used for void, the Pali word is ritika, and it means devoid of. And the word that's being used for hollow is the Pali word tucha, and it literally means hollow, the Buddha often used this word, he said, to describe a monk or kind of scold a monk who didn't really have much substance, who misspoke the Dhamma. And the Buddha would call such a monk a purisa, a hollow man, not a, not a person of substance. So he said, Bhikkhu Bodhi said, these two words, ritika and tucha, are synonyms for sunya, synonyms for empty So even though the word sunya isn't used here, the meaning is clearly the same. It could have been used here if the Buddha had wanted to. Further on in this sutta, I wish I'd put it in the handout. I'm sorry I I omitted it. I can't understand how I left this out because this is a very interesting passage too. The Buddha compares the aggregates to a magic show. And this passage goes like this. Suppose, bhikkhus, that a magician would display a magical illusion at a crossroads. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? And then he goes through similarly, what substance could there be in form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. It's like a magic show. And he sums up with this poem, which is in the handout Form is like a lump of foam, feeling like a water bubble, perception is like a mirage, volitions like a plantain trunk, and consciousness like an illusion. So explained the kinsman of the sun. Kinsman of the sun is just another word for the Buddha. But I might have to explain this one analogy of plantain trunk. Plantain is a kind of banana tree. And if you've ever seen a banana tree, it only grows once. And once the fruit ripens and are picked, the the trunk decays. It falls over because it doesn't have a solid core. So a banana tree, a banana trunk, only grows up once. And then without the solid core, it collapses And a new one has to grow for any more fruit to grow. So it's a symbol of hollowness, of emptiness. So all five aggregates are compared to these images, which are very insubstantial. A mass of foam, a water bubble, a mirage, a hollow trunk, and a a magical illusion. This is the nature of our human experience. So what's the point of comparing them to a magic show? Well, magic is really amazing when you don't know how it's put together. Have you ever watched a magician and just been in awe of the things that they could do? I have, and it's, you know, it's kind of mind-boggling. So I was thinking about, I was reading about uh, Harry Houdini, who's a great magician about 100 years ago. And Houdini would do this trick over and over again Where people would uh, tie him up with ropes and chains. They'd bind his whole body and even bind his hands behind his back. Then they'd lock those chains in with a a lock. Then they would put him in a wooden box, kind of like a coffin, and nail it up. And then they'd toss that box into a cold river and it would sink. And Houdini's trick was to free himself and come to the surface and not drown. So when he did it, it seemed like magic because people had seen all these steps. They'd seen him being tied up and locked and nailed into the box and tossed into the cold river water. So was it magic? If you read his accounts, he had little devices to deal with each of those ways of confinement. So the first thing was, the rope that tied his hands was not tied tightly. So he could always free his two hands. Then the locks that bound his, the ropes and chains that bound his whole body, secured by locks, he secreted little tiny uh, wrenches in his mouth. And when his hands were free, he could pull them out, and even in the darkness of water, pick the lock. So he picked that, and that came undone. But of course, this takes time. So he had trained himself to hold his breath for three minutes, even in the cold water of European rivers. So... He undid the chains, he undid the ropes, but he was still in a boarded up box. So, one more trick one of the sides was very lightly attached, and he could kick it out and then swim to the surface. Everybody goes, Wow, it's magic. It's really impressive, but once you know the trick, it's not as impressive, is it? I mean, it's still very cool. (laughs) I couldn't do that. But you realize it's just a collection of skills. And it's not magic anymore. So what the Buddha said about this formation of the aggregates is that one, when one sees them clearly as they really are, one becomes disenchanted. That means the enchantment of the magic show is over because we understand the workings of it. We understand the insubstantial nature of how it's been put together. So this is why we investigate. We come upon the secret of how this self, how this being has been constructed, how the sense of self gets constructed, how clinging happens to the various aspects of our experience, how it can be released, how the emptiness of self can manifest in that space of peace and spaciousness. And becoming disenchanted, it said, the mind becomes dispassionate. And becoming dispassionate, the mind becomes liberated. So this is why we want to see through the magical illusion in this way. Because it takes out the eye at the center that we hold as a center. There was one period of time a few years ago, I was on an extended period of retreat at home. And I was reading several different versions of this book by Nagarjuna, the Mula Madhyama Kikarika, which is referenced on the first page of the quotations if you need the, the name of uh, the title of that book. The whole thesis of the book is emptiness. He unwraps one layer of substance, peels that away. You think you're getting a, a stand on the next layer of substance and then he unwraps that and peels that away. And going through the 20 some chapters of the book, little by little, everything gets taken away. So I was very into this analysis while I was sitting and I was quite open and focused. And I had a dream about it one night. And the dream was I was standing in front of a full length mirror. And I was looking at my reflection in the mirror. And I asked the question, why is emptiness important? And the image in the mirror replied, because it means that you don't exist. Of course the body exists. Of course feeling exists. Perception, formations, consciousness. But this I that we take to be at the center of it isn't really there in the way we think it is. It means that I don't exist So the world doesn't contain me as a problem. So again, this is kind of pointing to the absence of I in the middle of it. I want to talk a little more about this uh, form being like a lump of foam. Because again, this is hard to understand. One of the beauties of our particular meditation practice is that as we get focused... We start to investigate physical sensations really closely. As you investigate physical sensations closely and your, your concentration strengthens, what happens to the substance? You know, as you're investigating the sensations in the body, as a retreat goes on, the substance tends to go away, doesn't it? And you just feel kind of... The momentary flickering nature of a sensation anywhere you turn your attention, you just feel pulsation, vibration, tingling, like little lights kind of pulsing on and off. All you see is the nature of change, nothing fixed or solid in the whole experience of the body through the sense of touch. And then you turn your attention to other aspects of experience and you get a similar sense. Sounds become very fleeting. You know, an airplane might fly by and you can follow that sound until it's completely gone. But all along the way, you just feel its vibratory, changeable nature and you feel it just fade away and it's gone. Sounds, just momentary, arising and passing. Tastes, smells, really hard to capture, aren't they? You ever go down and really want to smell the food and you can smell it for a while and then the smell just becomes harder and harder to find, as as though it's floated out. Tastes similar. An explosion of taste with the first bite and as you chew, 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 thinner and thinner, it goes away. Then many of you report in interviews that you turn, as your uh, mindfulness gets stronger, you turn your attention to a thought, and as soon as it's seen, it falls away. A thought collapses as soon as mindful attention is placed on it. And then, this is a, a more difficult area, but we often hear reports of this too, that even emotions that might normally come and be difficult to deal with, a flicker of anxiety or fear or anger can arise and you see it so clearly that it's as though it just dissolves right in that moment. And no way to sustain any sense of substance around it. So all these senses through our meditation, through our clear mindfulness and concentration, we start to see how they're just coming and going, just flashings into existence momentarily and then passing away. But for me, the experience that was always hardest to get that sense with was sight. Because when I would look out on the world, it seemed unchanging. If your eyes are open now and you look at this lovely pale yellow wall behind me, it looks pretty constant, doesn't it? If you touch the floor, it feels pretty solid. But the sight, especially, doesn't seem to change. It seems to reveal a real and solid physical world that we are embodied within. So how can we look into this sense particularly, which is hard to see the insubstantiality in? So science can be a little bit helpful here. Although science generally tends to posit a materialist and in the 19th century quite solid worldview. modern science has really revealed through quantum physics the space in all of matter, the formation of fundamental particles like protons, neutrons, neutrons and electrons, a lot of space in every atom, more space than matter. That's one way that it suggests the emptiness of what we see. But another way that uh, is just a little more immediate for me is to think about how light works, how a, how a sight arises. So we know from science that for a sight to arise, light from some source has to fall on an object, get reflected off that object, come to our eye, land on the retina, which then transmits an electrical signal along the optic nerve, up into a certain region of the brain where it ignites certain neurons and then something really amazing happens. The consciousness of the sight appears. I mean, what's the connection between neurons firing and consciousness happening? I have no idea and I don't even know how scientists are going to start to solve that riddle. But for now, you and I know that that's what happens. Somehow, through this chemical interaction in the brain, consciousness reveals a sight. Okay? So it seems like, okay, I'm getting the sight of that wall. It seems really solid. But when you think about this process, millions of photons have to hit the retina every second to sustain that sight. If the flow of photons goes away, the sight goes away. If we throw off the light switch and it's dark, no more image of wall appearing. So then we realize the image of that wall is actually getting regenerated hundreds, thousands of times a second through our neural circuitry. And that's why it seems the same, but every moment is a new image that's being recreated. Now, the other thing that's interesting when you start to think about this, because we normally think, oh, this is the real wall, this is the real world that I live in, we realize that that appearance of wall has somehow come out of our circuitry. It depends on how the neurons have fired in this brain for that image to arise. So do we ever really know what that, quote, wall looks like? How could we except through our senses? So what's happening is we're getting sensory data from the world, which is a reflection of light. It comes in through our eye, the eye organ, stimulates certain centers in the brain, and an image appears. What relationship that image bears to what's actually out there Who knows? We form that representation of the wall. It's not pre-existing. We form it through some combination of our circuitry and our human consciousness. So we don't live in what we consider to be the real world. We live in some representation that again is manufactured by our body and human consciousness whatever whatever that combination is. So this becomes kind of interesting. We realize that representation is not solid. We don't really know what's in the wall. I mean, even scientific instruments just measure what instruments can detect. But we know that what appears to us as a wall is only a representation that's arisen through our senses. And that is insubstantial because it's flickering on and off many times in a moment, many times a second. Often we, we think that um, we're resting on some kind of ground. You know, we generally take th- this ground to be real. And this ground is kind of, the floor in this room, which feels very solid, is kind of a representation for the Earth, which is our basic ground. And we think, well, at least we can rest on that, that solid. But when we think further, we realize if we go far enough into the Earth, we go out the other side and there's only space. So the ground that we take for granted is only resting in the middle of vast space. And the Earth doesn't have any ground. It's just hanging in the middle of vast emptiness. This ground is also just held in our consciousness. What we take as a ground is just a sensation of hardness. It's also held in consciousness, and we realize that consciousness doesn't have any ground. What is, what is your consciousness resting on? Nothing. Consciousness is just hanging there. So all the phenomena of the world are simply arising in this consciousness which has no ground. And we we don't know what's actually out there, but we know that how we experience the world through our sense phenomena is insubstantial, is only arising in consciousness. Consciousness. So as I understand it, our world of the senses is what the Buddha considered to be reality. This is the reality that he described and encouraged us to look at. I don't think he ever tried to comment on what kind of reality is out there. He was talking about the reality of the six sense bases and the five aggregates. Everything coming through the factor of consciousness, which itself is groundless. So there's another kind of fun way uh, to to play with this. If I ask you what color this book is, it's pretty clear, right? Let's say it's primarily blue. So we say the book is blue, but again, because you understand through science how light works, actually what's happening is that the blue is being reflected off the book to your eyes. And that's why we see blue. All the other colors are being absorbed. So truthfully, wouldn't it be more accurate to say the book is everything but blue? And the blue is being lost and bounced back? So where is this color blue? Is it in the book? Or is it only in your consciousness? I'd say it's only in your consciousness. This color blue is not necessarily found anywhere in the book, but it's arising in our senses and that's real. That arising is real. So this is the, this is the world that we actually inhabit. This is the reality of our human experience. We don't know the real world beyond our senses the world we inhabit is the world of our senses. It's a representation of reality held in consciousness. Normally, you know, what human beings do is assume that's the real solid world out there. And don't take the time to reflect that what's arising is only an appearance in consciousness. So sometimes the vocabulary is helpful to remember. Instead of talking about objects in the world, Objects like this striker, or objects like this book, or objects like the wall, let's talk about them as appearances. Everything that's in our experience is just an appearance, and it's constructed from some interplay between whatever's there and our sense apparatus. So in this way, this is why the Buddha described consciousness as a magic show. The Tibetans call this whole thing a magical display. It's arising in consciousness moment after moment after moment. And the arisings have their own laws. You know, there are physical laws and chemical laws and biological laws governing all the arisings. It's not chaotic. But it is kind of magical that this world keeps appearing. It's often compared to a dream when we start to see this insubstantial nature. And it's kind of interesting to reflect in just a moment of experience in waking life or in a dream, can you tell the difference? Now of course you know it's different when you wake up. Then you know it was a dream. I remember a dream one uh, Christmas Eve when I was about 10 years old. I had a dream that I went downstairs into my basement and the basement of our house had been filled from floor to ceiling with toys. <laughs> and they were all for me the next morning. <laughs> and I was so happy. I couldn't believe it. This was like everything I wanted. And I woke up and then I knew it was a dream. It was so disappointing, but I knew it was a dream, so I could let go of it quickly. But what if we knew this was a kind of a dream? Would we would we cling as hard as we do? You know, the reason we look into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, selflessness is so we don't hold on as tight. Emptiness the same way: as we investigate these empty appearances and see their insubstantial nature, the more clearly that scene the less tendency there is to hang on because it's kind of dreamlike. So there are a lot of um, similes that are used for this kind of insight. The ones in our text tonight, a lump of foam, a water bubble, a mirage, a hollow trunk, a magic show. You're probably familiar with a list from the Diamond Sutra, one of the Mahayana texts. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, like a star at dawn, a flickering lamp, a bubble in a stream, an echo, a mirage, and a dream. Which do you like better, Theravada or Mahayana? They're both pretty good, aren't they? And aren't they the same pointing? It's exactly the same pointing in this sutta as in the Diamond Sutra. Another image that's used a lot is the image of a rainbow is a beautiful one because it's so clearly appearing in the sky and yet there's nothing to grasp there. There's actually nothing colored in the sky. It's just the effect of sunlight doing two reflections off of water bubbles. One reflection, refraction and reflection off the back of a water bubble and splitting according to the prism-like effect of the water bubble. It looks like there's something there But there's actually nothing in the sky that's red or orange or yellow, green, blue, indigo or violet. Just an appearance, also compared to a rainbow. So, of what use is this kind of insight? It doesn't solve our human problem. And it takes a long time to incorporate, or you might say to integrate. But just like the Buddha said, if the perception of impermanence is cultivated and developed, it leads to the end of desire, the end of ignorance, the end of the conceit, I am. So similarly, these insights into the emptiness of of phenomena, emptiness of appearances, lead in that same direction. But we have to cultivate them we have to continue to develop them. There's a wonderful uh, text from the Mahayana from a a teacher named Atisha, called the Seven Point Mind Training. And one of these instructions, it's just a series of pith instructions. One of the instructions is, in post-meditation, be a child of illusion. And what this means is, when you're not doing formal meditation practice, where you're practicing awareness in a serious way, you're walking around, you're going to the meal, you're taking a shower, you're getting dressed in the morning. Post-meditation, post-formal meditation, be a child of illusion. The meaning is, remember this insubstantial nature of things. It's not saying that everything is an illusion. The illusion is if we take them to be solid and real beyond representations from our senses. The illusion would be attributing reality and solidity to those appearances, forgetting that they're constructed by the senses and consciousness. Okay, so seeing it is like an insight into impermanence is something we have to develop again and again. It doesn't solve the problem right away. This is a, a short passage from Leonard Cohen that I like from a song called The Street. I know the burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night The guru says it's empty, but that don't mean it's light. (laughs) So you might know yourself that it's empty, but it doesn't immediately make it light. But in the long run, it does. It makes it a much lighter relationship with the whole world, with the body, with external things, with people, with emotions, with birth and death. Everything becomes lighter. One of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher, said, uh, put it this way, said, everything that appears has no real existence whatsoever. That's maybe a little strong. But how about everything that appears has no substantial existence whatsoever? It's all just a momentary flickering, triggered by the senses and brought into consciousness, held in consciousness, consciousness. Just a momentary flashing into existence. So how do we actualize this insight um, in our practice? As uh, both Sally and Gil have said a number of times, we don't need to do anything different than what we're doing. It's the close attention to the details of our experience that reveal this stuff. It reveals the impermanence, it reveals the uh, unsatisfactory nature, it reveals the lack of owner or controller or center of the experience. The closer you bring your attention to it and the more stable that attention is, the more these qualities will just be seen, just be revealed. Emptiness is one of them that shows itself also in the same way. Cultivating the perception of impermanence will help this seeing. You know, impermanence is kind of like the easiest way in to emptiness and to not-self. It's something that we can always understand and change is fairly easy to see. So developing this perception of impermanence will start to open these other doors as well. Emotions are sometimes another of the stickiest points. Even when you can see oh, I get it, the wall's not solid, fear seems solid, you know, or anger seems solid. So really those can be the most impenetrable. It's good to practice when the mindfulness is strong and the emotion is weak. When that combination is there, that's when the the mindfulness of an emotion can just make it go poof. And you can see how light and cloud-like it is. At other times the mindfulness isn't as strong, the hindrance is thicker. That that poof doesn't happen. It's not possible to see the emptiness right then. But just keep practicing and the emotions get thinner. They get more transparent, easier to see to see through as we go. So this may have sounded like a kind of um, cold and rational and maybe even heartless analysis, but um, it's not not meant to be that way, and it's not that way for me. The time that I first got really interested in the aggregates was after my older sister had died. I have two older sisters, and one of them died uh, about 15 years ago. And she wasn't that old, she was 52. She'd been ill um, for a while but not seriously ill. She had a chronic ongoing condition but not uh, not life in risk or anything like that. And one evening she went into cardiac arrest and the paramedics were called but could not uh, bring her back. And she died uh, in the emergency room at the hospital that same evening. And it was a huge shock uh, to all of us. And she had three kids who were in their late teens and early 20s, a huge loss for them, and a loss for me too. I felt, uh, I felt really close to her. And I went through, as, you know, as happens with grief, I went through a couple of months of depression and kind of darkness and not wanting to get out of bed in the morning because I didn't see the point. And the thing that kind of um, confounded me about her passing one was the suddenness of it, but death is always sudden. We may be preparing to lead up to it, but the moment of death is always sudden. And what I couldn't quite get is how she had been so vital and present and real and herself You know, a couple of days before, because I'd talked to her on the phone, and she was healthy you know, for her state, relatively healthy. And then two days later, she wasn't here anymore. How, how could that happen? It, it, bo- it boggled me. I couldn't figure it out. And the only way that I started to make some sense of it was to understand myself, and then by extension her, in terms of the five aggregates. And then I saw how this appearance of a being, a substantial, solid character with a personality, I saw how it got put together. And then I saw how it could come to an end. And since then, I mean, it's not like death isn't a mystery to me anymore. I still wonder, where did they go? But I feel like the process isn't as, as boggling as it was before. And also, this, this process reveals a lot of compassion, this reflection, because it, it's our shared human situation the way these aggregates came together to make up this human being, you know, in the same way they can fall apart. I just want to read this one uh, passage. We were in a senior student's class some years ago, a group of Spirit Rock students, and we were talking about this fact of emptiness of self, emptiness of phenomena, and I asked them to reflect on it at home, and this is what one of the Uh, people reported in the next weekly class, she'd reflected on it, and she said, it's spooky. I would look at everything, like this Japanese lamp that I love, and I'd see that it's just an appearance. Where that took me is that we're all appearances. When I went from an object and say it's an appearance to a person and say they're an appearance, it made my hair stand on end. But it's true, and it makes you both more compassionate and more vulnerable. When I look at my friend Mary, I see that she's changing all the time. When you start thinking like this, you have to be more compassionate because we're all in the same boat and we're all so fragile. So emptiness is not meant to take us into a cold vacancy, but really to awaken this heart quality of connection and loving kindness and compassion. This is clearly in the teachings in our tradition also. You probably know the figure of Kuan Yin, who's the female representation of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, whom we've been chanting about. Kuan Yin became the feminized version when the Bodhisattva went to China. And Kuan Yin is said to be the deity, the enlightened being, who listens to the ten thousand cries of joy and the ten thousand cries of sorrow in the world? So she's always listening and always hears when we call on her. Well, Kuan Yin's a bodhisattva. That means she's not a beginning meditator. So Kuan Yin understands that there's suffering, but she also understands there's no I at the center of the suffering. You know, this is something we talked about the other day. The suffering arises when we try to hold on to what's changing, Just why one meditator described it as rope burn. <laughs> suffering is only rope burn, but there's no one who's holding there. So she understands there's suffering, but no I who's doing the suffering. So her, her smile, her half smile, is this beautiful balance of wisdom and equanimity compassion and and equanimity. So through seeing emptiness, the heart becomes uh, less burdened, less caught. But out of this opening, the fact that our heart isn't burdened, come loving kindness and compassion. And that's Kuan Yin looking on the world with its joys and sorrows. And so this quotation has been attributed to Kuan Yin in the, uh, the, uh, the myth of her being. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? So let's just sit uh, for a minute, please. So we have time for walking, and then we'll have the last sitting a day with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.